All right, we are going to be finishing up our series today. We've been doing it for the last couple months on uh, Jesus' fascination. We're talking about the reason why folks are fascinated with, with Jesus. And we've looked at uh, his teaching. We've looked at his miracles. We looked at his uh, resurrection. Uh, we looked at uh, the incredible compassion he has. And we talked about how uh, he came to reform the religious systems uh, not only in his day, but continual religious systems of even today. And today I want to talk on uh, this idea that Jesus comes to reveal who God is. And this is something we talk about a lot here. And so if you've been in this church for a while, you've probably heard most of this stuff before. But uh, this is something I want to talk about a lot. And I do talk about a lot because to me it's, it's vitally important to clear up some of the mud <laughs> that we have when we try to figure out who God is. And um, so we can even begin with that question. And that's when you think about God, like what is your sort of dominant image of God in terms of his character? Uh, when you think about God, uh, how do you picture God? Is, uh, is he loving? Is he kind? Is he angry? Is he wrathful? Uh, what, how do you see God? Because your reality is, I mean, even within Christianity, you will get different answers. And I say this from time to time, that even if you look at Christianity as a whole, it is almost like we worship different gods within Christianity because there are vastly different perspectives of the character of God within the wider umbrella of, of Christianity. Uh, I mean, uh, you can click on the screen there, Richard. Well, there we go. Uh, so if we look at, say, Jonathan Edwards, who's from uh, kind of mid-1700s, he preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And this is how he describes God's character. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more, uh, you are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. So there's one view of God within Christianity, and there are folks who would still hold that kind of view of God. And, and then we, we could take another view say from author Angela Thomas. Um, uh, God's love is the love that never fails. The unfailing love that we desire comes from him. His love runs towards me even when I am unlovely. His love comes to find me when I am hiding. His love will not let me go. His love never ends. His love never fails. And so here's just another Christian kind of talking about her perspective on what God's character is like. I mean, I mean, how do we know? Because you could listen to me and you might get one idea. We could listen to a lot of pe people here. We might have different ideas. I mean, there are a lot of different perspectives on the character of God. And so uh, how do we know? Uh, we could even open the Bible. And sometimes even when you read the Bible, it can be confusing because there almost seems to be you know, different ideas or perspectives on who God is even in the scriptures. I mean, we could look to, to Psalm 90. This psalmist talking about God says, you sweep people away like dreams that disappear. 
They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by the evening it is dry and withered. We wither beneath your anger. We are overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. That's from the psalm. So there's a perspective from this psalmist. Or we could maybe uh, look at what John wrote, which seems to be kind of a different perspective, maybe. Uh, 1 John 4 says, As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. I mean, how do we know God's character? How do we know what it's like? How do you know if, if our image of God is correct or if that person's image of God is correct? Or you know, if you took a poll, I mean, how do you know what in the world God is actually like? And you'd probably get different answers to that question within Christianity, but here's my answer. Jesus. Look at Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 12, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, because Jesus came to reveal to us, to clear up the mud and the confusion, to help us at least a little more clearly see who God is and what he is like. And I want to begin with the story in Matthew 17. Uh, it's a very, very important story. Uh, it says, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And so something miraculous obviously happened to, to Jesus. They, they call this the transfiguration. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And so they see Jesus begin to glow. Something weird is going on. And then something weirder happens because Moses and Elijah, you know, appear out of nowhere. And also they're chatting with Jesus. And Moses and Elijah were in the disciples' minds, would have been the two greatest people to have ever walked the planet. I mean, we call it the Old Testament. They called it the, like the law and the prophet, prophets, which was represented by Moses and represented by Elijah. Elijah was the greatest prophet. Moses was the one behind the law. They were the big folks of their belief system. And now they're standing with Jesus. And so Peter exclaims, this is kind of his first thought, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. I mean, I think that would be cool. I'd like to be there too. See Jesus glow and have two people appear out of nowhere. I mean, I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, Peter always has the, the funniest things to say. Uh, I'll make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, and, and he was thinking about this. I mean, he was beginning to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. This person that all of sort of the Jewish faith at that time had, had been looking towards this coming Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Elijah, who's the greatest of the prophets, who represents all of the writings of the prophets, shows up. And Moses shows up, who represents all of the, the law, the three great people. And so he's like, let's make three shrines, three kind of places where we can honor you, and three memorials, one for Moses, and one for Jesus, and one for Elijah. Because he's like, these are all awesome people that we can listen to. And then something even more crazy happens. 
But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. I didn't pipe in and say, yeah, listen to Moses and to Elijah and to Jesus. Uh, you would make shrines all equal to all three of them. No, when these three appear, God says, listen to Jesus. And this is what we must do. When we focus in on Jesus and listen to him more than we listen to Moses, more than we listen to, to Elijah, more than we listen to even Paul, we listen to Jesus primarily and filter all of that through Jesus, it makes things a lot more simple and clear within the Christian faith. Uh, all over the Gospels, it, it basically gives this flavor that Jesus came to reveal who God is and that we see God in Jesus. And we looked at this a few weeks back, but I want to spend a bit more time with this verse in John chapter 1. Because John just says something crazy here. He says, no one has ever seen God. And you might say, well, that, that's great. But if you know your Old Testament, you will start thinking, it's kind of weird because there are a lot of folks in the Old Testament who kind of saw God. But the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So no one has ever seen God. And you might say, well, what about Genesis 17? He said, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. I mean, here we have God appearing to Abraham. Yet John comes into the picture and says, nah, that didn't count. No one saw God. But what about Exodus 33? I mean, you can't get any more close to this. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. Now that's got to count for seeing God, but, but John pops in and says, nope, that doesn't count either. No one has seen God. Or what about 1 Kings 11? Solomon, the God of Israel who had God appear to him twice. That seems to be like seeing God. John would say, nope, or Hosea, I mean, jo Jacob... That's where we get the name Israel from. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, he there at Bethel met God face to face, and God actually speaks to Jacob. And he actually wrestles with God in kind of a really weird story. Um, but still, John says, no one has seen God. No one has a clear picture of God. No one knows the, the character of God fully. There's these little glimpses, but it doesn't count as seeing God. There's only one thing that counts as seeing God. And John says... It's looking at Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is himself God, has revealed God to us. And, and you remember Thomas when he was like, just show us the Father. I want to see God. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That Jesus taught himself that to look at him was to see God. To know him was to, to know God. That we see and figure out who God is most clearly in Jesus. And so we need to ask questions like, does your view of God line up with the character of Jesus? Because if your view of God doesn't line up with the character of Jesus, then it's something wrong with your view of God. Because <laughs> it lines up with Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, uh, John says that he reveals God to us perfectly. I mean, the Old Testament and sometimes our thinking about God can be like this picture, which may look like just blots to you, unless you've actually seen this before, then maybe you know what it is. Uh, but we can't figure this out. Uh, it just looks like blobs, but all you need to do is add a little bit of color, just a little bit of information, and all of a sudden we can see this clearly. And let me just add a little bit of color to this, and you'll know what it is. Snake. Now, I'm not saying that God's a snake. I'm not saying that. I'm just using this illustration. 
uh, that, that, you know, when, sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament or trying to figure out God or ourselves, we just get all these blurry, blotty images that we can't figure out. And then Jesus steps in and all of a sudden we see clearly who God is. And once you understand Jesus, you can actually go back to the Old Testament and you can still see it, can't you? Because you've, you've seen the color. And once you understand Jesus and start reading scripture through Jesus, then you can go back to these crazy texts and, and you begin to see where Jesus is and where he's not in, in certain passages. Uh, Hebrews 1 puts it this way. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. That he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint, not just like a half imprint or a side imprint, but the exact imprint of God's being. And so, again, if your view of God doesn't line up with Jesus, then there's something off with your view of God. <laughs> because it's got to line up with Jesus. Jesus looks like God and God looks like Jesus. Another um, translation says the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Or John chapter 1, again, this is the unique one, talking about Jesus, who is himself God. And this is, this is part of the heritage of Christian teaching, that Jesus is God. Um, this is a, a fancy word in Christian theology called the hypostatic union, if you want a, a fancy word to throw around. The hypostatic union is the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in one individual existence. And the, the teaching is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is both perfectly divine and perfectly human, having two complete, distinct natures at once, which is kind of confusing. It's kind of like the Trinity, you know, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it's one God, not three gods. It's kind of the same idea with Jesus. He's fully God and fully man, but one Jesus, uh, the hypostatic union. But again, this reminds us that, that Jesus, being fully God, reveals to us who God is. And so if you begin to teach a picture of God that doesn't line up with Jesus, then, then you shouldn't be teaching that. If you think about God in a way that doesn't line up with Jesus, then you should fix your thinking to line up with Jesus. I mean, uh, if you're afraid to think about going into the throne room of grace before, you know, the God of this universe, and you're afraid, yet you would think, I'd be fine going in to see Jesus, then there, again, there's something wrong with your picture of God. Because Jesus reveals us perfectly what God is like. And if you feel safe opening your heart to Jesus you should feel safe opening your heart to God. Unless you've got a twi twisted image because sometimes our images of God don't line up with Jesus. Now, Colossians 1 says it this way, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And John says, I mean, there's a sense that no one can see God because God is spirit. But because God poured himself into human flesh, we, we actually see God walking around. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And so if we can't figure out the invisible God, we look to the visible image of God, which is, which is Jesus. So again, make sure that all of our thoughts about God, our relations to him, our communication, the way our heart feels, it, it should feel the way it feels when you think about Jesus. Or Colossians 2.9, for in Christ, lives all the fullness, not just 90% or 80%, but all the fullness of God in a human body. In John 5, Jesus himself said, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. And so 
Jesus says, I, I can only do what the Father is doing because they're, they're intimately connected in such a way that we can't even separate them in this idea of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. Whatever Jesus said was, was exactly what God did. And he says, whatever Jesus said was exactly what God wanted to say. So we look at the Gospels. Every single thing that Jesus did was a representation of God's character. And so when we see him meeting with the woman at the well and people are freaking out because Jesus, why in the world are you talking to a woman? That's like, no, God is saying, this is my heart. When Jesus is touching the lepers and breaking the Old Testament law, you know, this, this was God's heart to reach out to these people. When, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is having compassion in, in our message a few weeks ago, we talked about the compassion of Jesus. That when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Matthew 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Or Matthew 15, I have compassion for these. This is God's heart. It's not God with a spider web hanging you over the fires of hell because he abhors you more than 10 million times than whatever bug that was. I mean, no, he has compassion on his people. This is the heart that Jesus reveals of God. And therefore, it's got to be our heart when we're thinking about God. We can look at uh, Jesus' picture of the, the, the prodigal son. And Jesus here is basically saying, this is what God is like. And he tells the story of this, this son who disowns his father and you know, basically wishes him dead by wanting his inheritance early. And he wastes it all on, on partying. And then he, he finally comes back and he's like, you know, maybe my father would accept me as a slave. And maybe at least then I could have something to eat. And he didn't think about coming back as a son, but maybe he was hoping that his father would at least have some mercy to accept him as a slave. And Jesus says, no, no, this is, this is what God is like. And while the son was still a long way off, his father, which represents God in his picture, saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And sometimes in our own sin, we're like, oh, I know God is not going to want anything to do with me now because I really, really screwed up and I'm having such an awful week. And, and that picture, that actually doesn't line up with Jesus. Like God is running towards us when we're messy. He's reaching out and having compassion on us when, when things are falling apart because this is the God that Jesus revealed. And most specifically, we see the heart and character of God revealed in the cross. The cross is, if you will, this, this deepest expression of who God actually is. Uh, John 1, 4, 8 says, God is love. And the very definition of love and God is actually wrapped up in the death of Jesus on the cross, where it says in 1 John three sixteen, this is how we know what love is. And God is love, so how do we know what God is and love is? Well, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, this, this self sacrificial, other-centered givingness, that that is the very character and nature of God. And so when we look to the cross, uh, we, we see some fascinating things on the cross. For instance, in Mark 15, it says, they crucified two rebels with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So here he is on the cross and going through the most excruciating pain ever. He's naked. He's fully exposed to all his people who just want him dead. And there's people hurling incense, or not incense, but insults, maybe incense, I don't know, uh, at him. Um, and just, a, just an awful scene. And then these, these criminals are start begin hurling insults at Jesus as well. And I don't know, you know I would definitely crack far before that. Uh, but Jesus 
to one of these criminals who was before hurling incense, uh, <laughs> insults. What's this incense thing? <laughs> Maybe we need some incense in here. Where's the incense? <laughs> I want one of those things that smokes so I can carry it around. I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> Jesus says, uh, the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, you nasty criminal, you're going to send you into the fires of hell because you're such a nasty person. You've done such a nasty life. No, he looks at this criminal and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, this person who lived this criminal life and then was hurling insults at, at the very son of God and then it just opens his heart just a tiny smidgen and Jesus has all this mercy and compassion. says, welcome into the family. I mean, that's, that is the heart of the father. And then, of course, the very heart of the Father, I think, is very much revealed in this statement where Jesus said, remember, everything that Jesus said was exactly what the Father wanted him to say. And so this prayer of Jesus was a prayer coming from the Father because Jesus didn't do anything or say anything that the Father didn't want him to say. And the hypostatic union says Jesus himself was God himself. And so this is a prayer from the Father, Son, Holy Spirit on the cross, looking out on his enemies, all these people who want to... You know, wanted him dead. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And if your view of God it doesn't have a forgiving heart, doesn't have a heart for enemies, doesn't have a heart for people that are different than you, because often we want God to hate the people that we hate, and we want God to make those people the enemy because they're our enemies, but, but God loves his enemies. I mean, Jesus lived out his teachings, which were the Father's teachings, which represented the character of God, like in Luke 6. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. And, and if you don't see God as someone who is kind and, and having a forgiving heart and, and thankful, uh, uh, kind to those who are unthankful and wicked, then, again, you could take your image of God and align it to Jesus. And if it doesn't line up to Jesus, then you've got to expel those things that don't fit with the one who came to reveal who God is. And just finally, in closing, I want to just finish with the idea of reading scripture through the lens of Jesus. Um, that again, when we, when we think about God, we can have a lot of ideas. There's a lot of ideas about who God is out there. And even when we read the scriptures, if you've honestly read the scriptures, <laughs> sometimes you're like, that seems to be a different picture of God. Or is it like this? Or is it like this? Or what God is like? Or can we even fit all these things together? I don't know how that fits together. I mean, how do you make sense of even God revealed in scripture? And I would answer the same thing. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, I have to say, because I always want to say this, that this is not the only view of interpreting Scripture. There's lots of different ways of interpreting Scripture out there. But, but I think this is the best way, and so do a lot of other folks, but not all folks would agree. Uh, that is just, when you read the Bible, just always be asking this question. Does this line up with the heart and the teaching and the model and example of Jesus? 
And if it doesn't, then we know, well, it's not for me today or I can't figure it out, but, but I know that God is most clearly revealed in Jesus. And so if it doesn't line up with that, then, then I'm just sticking with Jesus because that is whom I see most clearly and makes the most sense. And this is what the scriptures over and over again say that he has revealed to us who God is. In fact, Jesus said, before he ascended, he said, Jesus came and told his disciples I have been given all authority in heaven and in earth. That Jesus has the authority to help us figure out who God is. Jesus has been given all authority. He didn't say that, that you know, Jesus didn't say, you know, uh, I, this Bible has all the authority and I'm under that. No, Jesus has authority even over scripture. As very world-renowned theologians, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd say, Jesus did not tell his disciples that all authority is invested in the books that they would write he insisted that it was vested in his own person, that Jesus is the true word of God. That doesn't mean that the Bible's not inspired. Of course it's inspired, but it means that we read the Bible through the one who has all authority, who is our foundation, whom the Bible says we keep our eyes fixed on, who is the clearest revelation. And we start with Jesus and then go through scripture. I mean, if you start with scripture and then try to fit Jesus in there, sometimes you end up in a weird spot like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 says, no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. So when it comes to our thinking, the foundation must be Jesus. When it comes to our scripture reading, that foundation must be Jesus. When we're trying to figure out what, who God is and what he's like, that foundation must be Jesus. And so we read through Jesus. And I've used this example before, um, but this, uh, this is kind of how it can work. Uh, when we make spaghetti... We put in the water, we put in the noodles, and we boil it all together. Uh, but in the end, we don't want to eat the water. We don't want to drink the water because it's kind of goopy and starchy. We just want the good stuff. We want the spaghetti. So before we eat it, we take the spaghetti and we stick it through a strainer and all the starchy, goopy water goes out. And then we have the good stuff and we can put our sauce on it and eat it, right? Wouldn't you like a big bowl of spaghetti right now? I would. Uh, but this is, this is like Jesus is like the spaghetti strainer. And so when we have thoughts, we pour it through the spaghetti strainer of Jesus. Oh, it doesn't line up with Jesus. Then we know, well, that's probably maybe not a good thought. We can take scripture, you know, the Old Testament, all the different books. We can throw it through the strainer. And what doesn't line up with the clearest revelation we have of God, which is Jesus. Then we just think, well, that was maybe that cultural back then or doesn't line up today or something just from the Old Testament law that doesn't apply for us. I don't know, but, but I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he is the foundation, he is the authority, he is the one who is even over scripture. And so we read through, we study through, we live through the life of Jesus. As Brian Zand said, the question isn't, can we find it in the Bible? The question is, can we find it in Jesus? Jesus says to every would-be disciple, follow me. And so we are uh, disciples and followers of Jesus. He is the one who takes those blurry images of God, those ones we can't figure out, or the blurry images he may get from Scripture, and we look at Jesus, and all of a sudden, we see more clearly. 